Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, if you want to turn uh, to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the text is printed on the inside uh, insert in the bulletin, and there are also some Bibles out there on the, on the, uh, the desk out in the lobby. But uh, if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word as we read the scriptures this morning. Give ear to the word of God, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. It says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, those of you who have been here uh, for a while have have known that on the communion Sundays, which are on the first Sundays of the month, we've been uh, going through the Ten Commandments in order. uh, And the other weeks we've been going through 1 John recently. Um, And so we have gotten up to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. And I thought that it would be helpful uh, for all the commandments, but especially for this one in some ways, that we not just go through the text of the commandment that we did last month on Communion Sunday. We went through Exodus 20, verses 11 or 8 to 11, the actual text of the commandment itself. But also I think it, it helps, you know, Rob mentioned facets of a diamond and things. Sometimes it's helpful to look at the same topic or the same subject from another part of Scripture. And even sometimes from, from another uh, genre of scripture, sometimes from a narrative where you can see something fleshed out. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to see the examples of how the doctrine plays out in real life. And sometimes uh, in a case of, of this commandment, I think uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 58, it's really one of the greatest texts on the Sabbath that we can find in scripture. It's one of the most important and key texts. And so I thought it would be good for us and helpful to us and certainly instructive that we examine this passage as well. Uh, seeing how it it talks about the Sabbath in the uh, life and history of the people of God in the Old Testament and what it has to teach us about the commandment in our own lives uh, today. And so, well, you know, we did look at the passage in in Exodus 20 last uh, last month. I thought this passage would be good for us to look at this morning, at least briefly. Now, I I can't summarize the book of Isaiah for you in in one introduction to a sermon, but I'll do my best to give you the the basic gist of it. Um, In some ways, the sins that Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets called the people of Judah to repent of, uh, especially Isaiah in this particular case, all throughout the book of Isaiah in many ways, uh, in a lot of ways, the main sins that uh, the people were being called to repent of, you could sum them up as formalism and hypocrisy. Formalism and hypocrisy. In other words, They were going through the motions. They were going to the temple. They were giving their sacrifices. They were lifting up their hands in prayer and praise and kind of checking the box, right? But all the while they're checking the box, which it's good to check the box, so-called, right? I mean, it's better than not going to church, as we would say, at all. But they were checking the box, then living lives of iniquity. And so the prophets very often condemned them for it and called them to repentance for it, in fact, to use the language of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, uh, they were mixing, quote, iniquity and solemn assembly. God tells them he cannot endure it in Isaiah 1. 
In fact, if you read Isaiah 1, it's one of the, um, I want to say, one of the more harsher passages. It's not harsh in a bad way. God's just in all he says there. But he really calls the people right from the get-go. Like there's no easing into the subject in Isaiah 1. It's, it's right thrown right into the middle of it. And he, he upbraids the people and rebukes them for these things, for, for, for going through all these different motions in worship while living in iniquity. And he says, he, when, you lift, when you raise your hands in prayer, what does he tell them? I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Like, I'm not going to hear. You can pray all you want till you're blue in the face. I'm not listening. Like, that's, that's a pretty hard thing to hear from God. That's what he says uh, in the very first chapter. And he has much in a similar way to talk to his people throughout the rest of the book. And so, in other words, what the people in Isaiah's day and also later on were doing was they were neglecting and disobeying God's commandments, doing unjustly, oppressing the widow and the orphan, all the while continuing to go through the motions of worship in the temple, again, offering up the, the, the prescribed sacrifices, lifting up their hands in prayer, observing the different new moons and festivals and Sabbaths. They were doing all that as if, despite all their wickedness, it's as if they thought, well, all is well with them and God as long as they do those things. As if that makes up for, in some way, the ways that they were living. And so, uh, on top of all this, they had the audacity uh, to wonder and ask why it was that, in spite of all their checking the box, so to speak, that why it was that God wasn't hearing their prayers. And why it was that God was not showering them with blessings from heaven. And why is that? You know, it's easy to look at these Old Testament passages and kind of put them under glass, so to speak, and, oh, this is interesting, and not really be honest with yourself and, go, and say to yourself, this is application for us today. You know, people, we, we sometimes think, well, this is so long ago. Isaiah, you know, what, 2,700 years ago, give or take, uh, depending on how you, you count the, the years, a long time ago. And we might say, well, you know, people back then, they're way different than we are now. They were primitive, you know, and we have airplanes and microwaves and smartphones and all these things, satellites. Uh, we were so different, but we're really not that different. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and so we, we are very much in some ways tempted to the same things that they did. And what, what they think is sometimes the same thing that we think. They, think. they seem to think of God's grace in a way as if it was a mechanical process. You know, there's a, a, a Coke machine out in the, the entryway when you first come in the door, and it used to be, I don't know how much it used to cost, but uh, it seems like the price keeps going up. But, you know, back when I was a kid, it was probably 50 cents, and you put the quarters in, clink, clink, and hit the button, the Coke comes out. We sometimes think of God, I hate to say it this way so crassly, kind of like a vending machine. I do this, God does that. I, I check this box, God is somehow obligated to dispense the blessing. In many ways, that's what the, the Protestant reformers accused the Roman Catholic Church of doing with God's grace. You know, the Lord's Supper, I won't preach the sermon before, this, you know, before that, but the, the Lord's Supper in many ways, they, they looked at it as, as if it was like that. You take this physically, you take the cup and the bread, you get the grace, period. There is no such thing as partaking in the, in the, the Roman Catholic doctrine partaking of the table of the Lord without receiving the grace. It's, a, it, it's as if it were a mechanical process. You put the quarter in, the Coke comes out kind of a thing. That's, that's kind of the same way the Israelites, the, Ju the people in Judah, were thinking of God's grace. 
when it came to the temple. In fact, you might remember, I think it's in the book of Jeremiah, uh, that Jeremiah, who also ministered around the same time as Isaiah, rebuked the people in the name of the Lord, saying, don't sell yourself the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What were they doing? They used the temple like a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, it's like when you ever play, you ever do something wrong when you were a kid uh, and your brother or your sibling is chasing you and you run to mom and mom is like the base. As long as you're touching mom and you're there, the other kid can't touch you. You know, oh, I'm safe now. I'm with mom. They thought that the temple was their base, their safe place. As long as the temple was there, no enemy nation, no certainly no pagan nation could ever touch them. Now, we know from history that's not how that worked out. And Jeremiah warned them. He said, don't say to yourself the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Because what happened to that temple, the earthly temple, when Babylon came? They destroyed it. They, they ripped it to the ground. They carried the people of Jerusalem off to captivity. Remember Daniel, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's, that is the context in which Isaiah ministered. He was warning them in God's name, repent or this is coming. And, of course, we know uh, in history they did not repent. And yet God showed them mercy after the fact and brought them, brought them back. So, you know, God sent his prophets, including Isaiah, to call them to repentance. He threatened. God did severe chastisement. You know, uh, I'm no historian. I'm, it's not my strong suit. But if you understand what happened in the Babylonian captivity, it's a frightful thing to consider. The death and destruction that came upon God's holy city, Jerusalem, when they came. I mean, they, they killed who knows how many untold thousands and thousands of people and carry people off into exile, all for their, rebu- their, their rebellion against, against God. Uh, that is what God warned them of, and yet they still did not repent. Now, God certainly, we know, preserved himself a remnant from the people of Judah, but the people by and large had hardened their hearts and failed to repent. And so in God's timing, by his decree, Babylon, you know, the most wicked pagan nation in the world at the time, uh, they came, uh, according to God's decree, and destroyed Jerusalem and carried many people off away into captivity. And believe it or not, the reason I bring this up, and Isaiah brings it up in some ways too, one of the sins for which the Babylonian captivity was inflicted upon them, we're going to find out, was literally for profaning the Sabbath. It's not the only one. Now, you might say to yourself, Pastor, you just told me they were still going to the temple. They were still offering their sacrifices. They were still observing Sabbaths and new moons and other kinds of things. But we're going to find out that that is exactly the case. God literally, one of the reasons he sent that judgment of the Babylonian captivity upon the people of Judah was their profaning the Sabbath. They, they, you know, so think about that next time we think very lightly of the Sabbath commandment. I know we sometimes think of it as almost like as if it doesn't apply today. We, we, we almost think of nine commandments rather than ten. Well, uh, God takes this one rather, rather seriously. It reminds me, it's a different topic. Um, whenever we think of the Lord's Supper lightly, I don't know if you know the story of Latimer and Ridley from your church history. Uh, they were uh, Protestant reformers in England who were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there's, there's a famous speech that, uh, that they gave, and I don't have it memorized, and I didn't write it down. Uh, I forget which one gave it. I want to say it was Latimer who said to Ridley, you know, something like this, you know, Master, take good heart, Master Ridley, and play the man. Uh, he says, for this, this day we're going to light a candle in England uh, that, you know, in 100 years it won't be put out, something like that. Like, we're getting burned at the stake, and he's like, we're lighting a candle for the Lord. 
that, that no one can put out. In other words, God was going to use this, as awful as it was, to spread the gospel. And God certainly did do that. And the reason I bring that up, do you know what one of the charges was against Latimer and Ridley? Their view of the Lord's Supper, that they rejected transubstantiation, that they rejected the mechanical view of God's grace. Their view of the Lord's Supper, they were not willing to change and recant, and they went to, to death by being burned at the stake over it. That's how important they saw it was. When, in a different way, God views his Sabbath so seriously that he sent the Babylonian captivity in part at least because of it. So now our text this morning, it really is more of a promise of blessing than it is an explicit rebuke, although there's an implied rebuke in it. In some ways, it's both. And you could say that in our text, in some ways, if, if I can say this without sounding too uh, often in any way, God is literally basically trying to woo his people back to him here. He's, he's not breaking out the ruler and smacking their wrist. He's saying, look, I mean, look what you're neglecting. Look what you're missing out on in your profaning of, of his holy day. He's trying to woo his people back to himself by his precious promises of blessing that are attached to keeping his Sabbath holy. But in order for us to rightly understand what's being said here, I think we need to at least briefly look at the sin of profaning the Sabbath that they were called upon, uh, being called upon to repent of in, in in the first place. So look again at verse 13. Uh, Isaiah writes this. He says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, and if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. So the first thing he says is, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath. Now that even the translations, if you look at your King James and other translations, you see there's a lot of sometimes italicized words. What that means in most of your translations is they've sort of added a word they thought was implied, and I think they're mostly right in doing so, but they italicize it. So we understand as the reader, they're kind of supplying a word that's supposed to kind of bridge. Uh, it seems like there's a gap in what's actually being said. In English, it's harder to understand it than it might have been for the original Hebrew reader. So... But what does it mean to turn back our foot from the Sabbath? Why does he put it that way? What is he getting? And I think it's implying something like uh, trampling the Sabbath underfoot. I think that's the word turn back is the word that's commonly used for repent. To turn back is to repent from sin, to turn back from sin and turn back to God. So he's telling them, turn back your foot from the Sabbath. Refrain from trampling it underfoot is something common. It's either way, it's a call to repent of profaning God's Sabbath and treating it as unholy or as common. Um, the phrase really is being expanded upon in the, in the line right after that. Uh, and the phrase that follows, so God tells us here that to turn back our foot from the Sabbath is essentially to refrain from, quote, doing your pleasure on my holy day. That's, that's what it means to turn back your foot from, from the Sabbath. Now, some maintain, and I've heard some even in presbytery meetings maintain, that doing our pleasure on God's holy day is really a matter of what we often call, maybe this is a phrase you've never heard of before, but I'll try to briefly explain it. They'll say, oh, it's a, it's a matter of the regulative principle of worship. Now, if you've never heard that, you are not alone. That phrase, all that weird-sounding phrase means is, and we believe that, for it, that, that, that thing to be true, is that God's word regulates all of worship. In other words, we in the Reformed uh, community, what we believe is we only do in worship what God commands explicitly in his word. 
Um, some, some churches, some believe that worship is kind of, a, for lack of a better term, it's a free-for-all. We can do whatever seems right to us within, within reason. That's not what the Scripture teaches. It's as if some people believe the Scripture has very little to say about worship. Well, we just read the Ten Commandments, and the first four commandments, rightly considered, have a lot to do not just with your relationship to God and loving God, but a, a, a key part of that is it deals with worship, with how we approach God. What is worship? It's spending time with God. It's approaching God. Uh, to have fellowship and communion with him. Uh, and so that, that is, a, is something that uh, we say the scripture teaches, uh, that we're only to do what God commands. Remember the, the sin of Nadab and Abihu in the book of Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 10. They were the priests in the house of God, and they, they brought what the King James says, strange fire or you know, unauthorized incense before the Lord. They were leading the people in worship, and they said, you know, we're going to do new and improved. We're going to, we're going to tinker with things. We're going, to, we're going to improve on what God has commanded and do something just a little different, right? They weren't changing the whole order of worship, but they were saying, you know, I think this would be better. And what did God do? It sounds very strict and harsh, but, you know, the punishment kind of fit the crime. They offered unauthorized fire, and fire came from the Lord and destroyed them. And it's that Aaron held his peace. Their father, Aaron, held, held his peace. He was, in other words, God was right to do what he did because they were treating God as unholy before all the people. When in the same way, we, we, we hold that the scripture teaches what we are to do in worship and we are not free to do whatever else we please in worship. And so some, some look at this Sabbath passage in Isaiah 58 and they say, well, he's not saying when he talks about refrain from doing your pleasure on the Sabbath, they would say that he's not saying they were doing what they wanted throughout the day, but that they were doing whatever they felt like doing in public worship. And so very often that is used as a way of sort of rationalizing, in my opinion, a low view of the Sabbath of saying, well, as long as I go to church, I can go out to eat, I can go watch football games, I can do whatever else. Uh, whereas I believe the plain meaning of the text is doing your own pleasure on my day is just what it sounds like uh, it means. That is what it means to turn your foot away from the Sabbath. Uh, but the idea that this is about the regulative principle of worship, uh, so-called, does not fit the context of the passage at all, in my opinion. It doesn't, it doesn't fit it, or it doesn't fit the rest of the chapter. Look at Isaiah 58, same chapter, verse Three, Isaiah 58.3 also has that same phrase in it about doing the people doing their own pleasure on the Sabbath. And what does it say in particular about it? It involved their work. It involved them how they treated their laborers. It involved, in fact, the ESV puts it down. Behold, in the day of, of your fast, while you're doing this worship, right, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers, they were mistreating their workers, probably, among other things, causing them to labor on the Sabbath. In other words, they were doing what they wanted, and it had nothing to do with the temple. They were, they were oppressing their workers. They were going to the temple themselves and letting other things be done the way that they wanted it to be, to be done. In the latter part of verse 13, you might notice it spells out three ways, three ways in which we are to honor or sanctify the Lord's holy day, the first of which we've already mentioned, is simply not going your own ways. In other words, just not doing whatever we want on the Sabbath rather than devoting that day to be time spent 
with God. The second thing, the second way that we honor God's holy day, it says there is not seeking your own pleasure. The fact that verse 13 mentions this twice and the chapter mentions it three times, I think should impress upon us how important that aspect of obeying God's command on the Sabbath really is. And the third thing that is involved in honoring the Sabbath in verse 13, and it may sound kind of uh, strange to our ears, but he says not it's not quote, talking idly or literally, it's speaking your own words. Like, that is how, how would you say, uh, all-encompassing the command is. It's even to be a day when we don't talk about other things, not sinful things. It's always sinful to talk about in, in a sinful manner, right? He's not saying you can say all the bad stuff you want in the other days of the week, but on Sunday or in Isaiah's day, on Saturday, no, 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 you know, you've got to watch your mouth on the, on the Sabbath. No, he's saying even on the Lord's Day, on the Christian Sabbath, don't talk about other things. Don't let your conversation be so wrapped up in the things of this world, not the bad things, you know, your work, among other things. It, it, it isn't a day for shop talk. It's not a day for small talk and things like that. That is part of what it means to sanctify the Lord's Day, not speaking idly. Uh, we're not to speak in such a way that distracts from or dishonors the holiness of God's day. That's a, that's a tall task, isn't it? I don't think any of us would dare raise our hands and say, oh, I, I've, I've done that. I, I've, that's something I always do. I never talk about other things on God's day. I always talk. We all probably sin in that way in many, in many ways. And I think we don't think much of it because we're just not used to it. It's not something most of us have been raised uh, to think about. Now, I want to look at, briefly, Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, that chapter is very instructive in this particular regard. Remember that Nehemiah was a prophet, a prophet of God and somebody who ministered among God's people who had been returned home from Judah, to, to, returned home to Judah after the exile in Babylon. So I know that Nehemiah is earlier in your Bible than Isaiah and all these other books are. But the, the things that happened and transpired in Nehemiah's day historically are after the things that we read in Isaiah. They are after the things we read of in the book of Daniel. It's, it's when God brought the people in his mercy back from their captivity in Babylon. And they were charged with rebuilding the wall. Remember, that's what, that's what Nehemiah was basically charged to do. He was kind of the governor sent back there to oversee that. And he was overseeing the rebuilding of the wall. The people were to rebuild the temple. But when you read Nehemiah, you find out in those chapters that it's as if the people really hadn't learned their lesson at all. The very sins that God sent them away into exile for, it's as if they went right back to them without much, without much uh, thought uh, at all. And so in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, it says, saw the people profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, verse 15 and how were they profaning the Sabbath? He says that he saw them uh, treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. In other words, they're trying to get a jump on business. They're trying to get things into the city, and they, they were doing it on, this, on God's holy day uh, no less. And so it says in verse, verse 15, he rebuked the people that he saw doing it. He rebuked them. Uh, he, he warned them about it. And then it says in verse 16 that he contended, that's a strong word, contended with the nobles of, of Judah. In other words, 
He, he warned and rebuked the people themselves that were doing it. Then he went to the people in charge, the, the leading people of Jerusalem, and said, hey, look what you're allowing to have happen. God is not going to be pleased with this. In verse 16, he says to the, to the nobles this. What is this? Listen to the word he uses. What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster? And that's that's literally the same word evil there. Did not our God bring all this disaster or evil on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What is Nehemiah saying when he says that? What exactly is the evil he was referring to? He's saying, if I can summarize uh, in a way, he's saying, remember how we got in this mess in the first place? We just got sent back from exile. Why did that exile happen? Because the people in, in, their, in their father's day did this. They profaned the Sabbath, among other things. That is literally what Nehemiah is telling them. Like, God, God, he says, what does he say there? You are Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. God, God judged his own people for their profaning of the Sabbath in a very uh, strict, I think, way. A, a very just way, but a way that we might see as very strict and severe. So think about this. What happened because of their profaning the Sabbath in their father's day? The Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They killed who knows how many people, and they dragged many other people off into exile. And Nehemiah is telling them, do you want this to happen again? Look what you're doing. Remember why this happened in the first place. They hadn't learned their lesson. So how seriously does God take uh, his holy day? He takes it so seriously that he promises such great blessing to those who seek to honor it. And he also warns that he will send severe chastisements upon those people and those nations who profane it. Now, I dare say many of us in the church in America today all too closely resemble, I think, in some ways, the people in Isaiah's day and in Nehemiah's day as well. In other words, we just kind of go on because it's our it's what we're used to doing. We go on seeking our own pleasure on God's holy day. And then we, we shrug our shoulders and we wonder why it is that just like they did, why isn't God blessing us? Why isn't God showering our nation with blessings from heaven that we might wish and pray to see poured out on our land? I, I think it may not be the only reason, but I'm sure it's one of the reasons. You know, we, we have uh, it, today was one of the few exceptions. You know, we pull in here in the morning to set things up for church. And it, it grieves me every time we pull in. It seems like every other Sunday, the parking lot across the street has hundreds of cars in it. For things like softball and soccer and the fair and all kinds of things. And we, we just, it's what we're used to. And we think, oh, it's nothing. It's profaning the Sabbath. It's part of God's moral law. And we're flouting it. And we're so used to it that we act like it's really nothing. May God give us genuine repentance from the heart uh, in, in these things in this regard. Well, so what does God call us to do in our text? It's not, everything I've said so far probably sounds rather harsh. Maybe you're sitting here like, oh, I picked the wrong Sunday to come uh, to church. What, what does God call us to do in this text? Does he call us to put on sackcloth and ashes? Does he call us to, to walk around in dreariness, burdening ourselves on his day? Does he, does he tell us to grit and bear it? 
defining the day by what we cannot do and thinking of it as a day when we don't get to do what we really want to do? Are we to think of the Sabbath as a day of unpleasant harshness and hardness of task? Is that what God is calling us to do anywhere in his word, much less in Isaiah 58? No. Far from it. In verse 13, he tells us through the prophet that we are to do what? Call the Sabbath a what? A delight. That is foreign to most of us. It, it, that's not how we're wired. Maybe none of us are wired that way on our own. It doesn't come naturally, I think, to any, even to the most you know, long-time believer. It just doesn't come naturally to us. So God, but God tells us, call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. Now, I'll ask this. If you delight in something, whatever it may be, if you delight in it, um, do you find it dreary or burdensome? Is there something, you know, think, I won't ask you to raise hands or, or shout out what it is. Think of something you delight to do. Not, not sinful things, good things, I, whatever it is. Uh, sports, fishing, music, hiking. Pick something that you really enjoy doing. Do you ever do it and say to yourself, oh, you know, oh, I got to go. Now, if it was hiking, that's how I would feel. You know, when it's a thousand degrees out, I'm not going to, what is it, potato chip rock and uh, baking myself for two hours. Uh, that's not my, I don't delight in that. Uh, if you do, that's weird, but, but it's okay. Um, but do you, do you find it dreary or burdensome? Do, do you wake up in the morning and, or do you look at your alarm clock and go, I'm going to, maybe I'll sleep in a little bit longer before I have to get to this? No. Do we delight in God's Sabbath? Do we think of Sundays as the best day of the week? Not that other days are bad, but do you say to yourself, it's Sunday. It's almost, it's almost Sunday. I can't wait to go and be with God's people on Sunday. Now, uh, my family has a couple short getaways planned in upcoming months. Uh, nowhere exotic or exorbitant to be sure, but I have to say we're all pretty excited about it after we talked about it and kind of planned it and put it in the calendar and got things kind of finalized. Uh, we're looking forward to these trips. Uh, they're both near the beach, and one of the locations holds kind of a special place in our hearts uh, from previous trips and memories of, of times that we've been there in the past. Um, I don't think Luke's ever been there, but he'll enjoy them as well. Um, but think about this. What if, what if I'll use us for an example because that way nobody can get offended except my family. Uh, let's just say that we're going on these vacations. You know, We're, we're going to the beach uh, up at some place we'd love to go. And uh, and we get there, we unpack, we, you know, spend the night, get up the next morning. Everybody wants to go see, you know, the rock at Morro Bay or they want to go swimming at the beach. But me, I tell them, well, why don't you guys go? Um, I've got a lot of work to do. I'm going to I'm going to sit back at the at the Airbnb and with my laptop and my Bible and I'm going to work on stuff. Uh, work on my next sermon series or do something work related. I've got some kind of I've got to catch up on my emails or whatever. How would that how would that fly? Do you think? How would that how would that vacation? Do you think how do you think it would go? Or what if we're there and the kids spend half their time staring at screens? You know, we're we're at the beach. We're seeing all these beautiful things and they're looking at their their smartphone the whole time or playing whatever game you might play on your phone. How would that how would that go? Would that be received very, very well? You know, what if we all decide we just want to go do something by ourselves? We're not going to spend time with each other, even though it's one of the few times where. No, it would be a disaster. It would be an, an abject disaster. It would be a complete waste of a vacation. 
None of us, I dare say, us or the kids, none of us would ever look back on that vacation and go, remember that trip we took to such and such? Wasn't that a great trip? We'd probably say, I don't think I ever want to go there again. I don't want to you know, be stuck someplace for a week with people that don't want to spend time with me. The people that, of all people, should want to do just that. None of us would have fond memories of such a vacation. But in a sense, we do the same thing and worse when we profane the Sabbath instead of delighting in it. That's really the same kind of thing uh, that we do. In, in his book called The Lord's Day, Dr. Joseph Piper says this. He says, we are to look at the Lord's Day like a spiritual vacation. I eagerly anticipate a vacation as a time to forget about job pressures and enjoy my family. God gives us a weekly vacation that we may turn away from the mundane everyday activities and enjoy him. That's really what the the Lord's Day is meant to be. You know, God did not make man for the Sabbath, Jesus says, but made the Sabbath for what? For man. It's, It's for our benefit. In fact, in the commandment that we read this morning, God, what, blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I think we, we, we hear the part about made it holy, but we don't think much on the fact that God put his blessing upon it. That's the purpose of the Sabbath, a day set apart by God for our benefit, that we might have time to spend with him together as his people, a day in which we are called to enjoy God more than other things that we might enjoy on other days. You know, um, us Presbyterians are an odd bunch at times, Uh, And we have the Shorter Catechism. And if I were to ask you if you're familiar with it, if you're familiar with the Shorter Catechism at all, the first question is probably the one you remember. It says, what is the chief end of man? And I know we don't talk like that. Chief end means main purpose. Why did God make you? Why are you here? What is the chief end of man? What is it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You know, I don't know about you, but if I was writing the Shorter Catechism, and thank God that I'm not the one who wrote it, because it's much better for other people having written it, I would have probably just said, man's chief end is to glorify God. But the Puritans, you know, the ones that everybody calls sticks in the mud, the ones that were so, they were no fun, and all they did was rain on people's parades, and they were all just, you know, dreary and things. They're the ones that wrote that and said, man's chief end, our main purpose for existing, for God creating us, is that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. In other words, not just in this life, but in heaven, in the world to come as well. That's our main, that's our main purpose, and God gave us his day, one day in seven that we might learn, which we have to learn sometimes, to enjoy him. Well, last but not least, God not only calls us to, to, to call his day a delight, but he also gives us a great promise of blessing for those who will take the time to learn to delight in his holy day. And the first of those blessings, and in some ways the most important blessing that he promises us, is that if we will delight in the Lord's day, we will also then come to delight in the Lord himself. And isn't that the point? Look at verse 14. It says, Then, if you call the Sabbath a delight, then you shall what? Take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, it may be that we often sometimes view the Sabbath as a burden of sorts. 
mainly because I think we don't truly delight in the Lord himself as much as we ought to in the first place. If we truly delighted in the Lord, we would delight in his day. If we delighted in the Lord more, we delight in worship and joining with each other in public worship on his day. If we delighted in the Lord more, we would delight in his day and not see it as a burden to spend the day uh, and, and not just an hour or so with him and his people. But in God's great kindness and his compassion to us as our heavenly father, as his people, what does he promise here? He promises us the blessing of changing our hearts. He knows we struggle with it. It's not a surprise to God that many of us struggle with this, with this commandment and, and don't know what to do with it at times. And it doesn't come naturally to many, to many of us. But he promises us to change our hearts if we seek to obey this command. By his spirit, he inclines our hearts and says he will incline our hearts more and more to learn to take delight in God himself if we learn to take delight in his day. It's as if he's saying in the words of Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. We, we, I think some of us, we, we think of the Lord's Day as, you know, when you were a kid and your parents tried to get you to eat vegetables, you know, and you kind of pushed them around on the plate to make it look like you ate more than you did. It's like, you know, you almost had to have your arm twisted behind your back. That's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath, you know, we should think of it more like the birthday cake. The more the, like we're going to get the other stuff out of the way in order to have it. And so I'll ask this morning, do you sometimes struggle to delight in the Lord? I think if, any, if, if you're honest, if, if any of us are honest, we have to admit that that's the case. Do we sometimes struggle to delight in God himself? If so, may I humbly ask that you examine yourself, and especially regarding your view and practice of the Lord's Day. That's what God promises here in our text. If you call the Sabbath a delight and seek to honor his holy day, then we will learn to delight in God. You know, we take delight in many things in this life, many good and pleasant things that we have been given to by God uh, to enjoy. God gives us many good gifts to enjoy in this life. But do we delight in God more than those things? Learning to call the Sabbath a delight brings with it the promise of God that he will work in us more and more by his Holy Spirit to teach us to delight in him more. Now, how how and why is that the case? What is, what is God getting at when he says, you, then you will delight in, in the Lord? I think at least part of it has to do with the outward and ordinary means of grace. Uh, I think that has to be, it's not explicitly spelled out for sure, but I think that's the point. Spending time in God's house on God's day with God's people uh, involves the, the, what we call the outward and ordinary means of grace. Now, what are those in our day? It's the preaching of the word of God the public uh, gathered church in prayer, the fellowship of God's people, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These, these are not the flashy things. These are not the things that, um, you know, when you look at ads in the papers or, if you know, people, churches advertise and do marketing and things, you'll probably never find a church mailer or a church advertisement or marketing thing that says, hey, we, we spend time in the word of God we have the Lord's Supper and baptism and administer them properly. Uh, we pray. We have prayers in church that are more than five seconds long. Uh, and we spend time with one another in fellowship. You'll probably never find those things mentioned in any ad for a church or any kind of mailer or whatnot. And yet, what is God in his grace? What does he normally use in your life to make you grow in grace? 
It's those things. And it's not an accident that our, our Reformed forefathers called them the outward and ordinary means of grace. Now, ordinary means that sometimes God uses other things that are extraordinary, but it's not the main way he works, is it? And they're ordinary. There's nothing flashy about them. There's no, there's no you know, uh, some churches you see uh, videos of online. It's a, very, it's a big production. There's like theater lights everywhere, and you're like, am I at a concert or am I at a worship service? It's very flashy. It's meant to be impressive. It's meant to kind of bombard your senses. And wow, I had an experience at church. Well, that experience might not have had anything to do with the Holy Spirit at all. It might have been the same experience we have when you go to a concert or go to some kind of a show. But that's not what that's not how God works. You know, it's like remember the, the story of the prophet who was told to listen for God's voice. And he didn't hear it in the whirlwind. He didn't hear it in all this big, loud stuff. He heard it in a still, small voice, a little whisper. Like, that's how God works through his word. Nothing fancy, nothing flashy, but it's how God works to make us grow in grace. And I think that's what God is getting at in some ways here in our text. What's the second blessing uh, that God promises to us if we will delight in his Sabbath and call it a delight? He says that we will, he will make us what? Ride on the heights of the earth. Verse 14, that is the language of victory and I think even of prosperity in some ways. Now, we shouldn't take this as some kind of a promise of worldly wealth and prosperity. I don't think that's what God is saying here, although God does very often prosper his people in the works of our hands. Um, but perhaps victory involves being used by God in some way, either individually as a believer or as the church corporately. Perhaps that victory involves being used by God to help bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, perhaps that involves the blessing of God bringing revival upon our land so that our nation turns back to God from wickedness and unbelief. You know, we, it, he doesn't quantify it for us, but the picture he paints is clear. You'll ride on the heights of the earth. God will give you victory that, that, that he wants us to have and he will use us in many ways. And last but not least, there's a promise, he says, of being fed by God. Remember, he says, I will feed you. He doesn't just say you'll be fed. I will feed you with what? The heritage of Jacob, your father. That's the language of feasting in abundance. You know, these are the very things they were not experiencing in their day in Nehemiah's day or in Isaiah's day, for that matter. The things they were crying out to God for that God was withholding because of their, unbe their unbelief in many cases and, and because of their sins. God was promising to them that they would just delight in him and in his day. Now, in Israel and Judah, in, in their day, no doubt, part of that heritage was the enjoyment of peace and prosperity in the land that God had sworn to give to their forefathers in the faith, even Jacob. But I think these promises ultimately are of greater things than any kind of earthly land or earthly inheritance in that way. But the pic either way, the picture that God is painting here through Isaiah, I think, is clear. You'll delight in the Lord. You'll ride on the heights of the earth. Uh, and will be fed with the heritage or the inheritance of Jacob, our father. The good things that we so much learn, yearn and long for from God, uh, he, he gives those things to us by his grace very often when we delight in him. It's delighting in God in which those things come. And so I'll ask this morning, um, that sounds like a lot, right? That sounds like some pretty big, pretty big promises that God offers us and, and gives to us. Do you have difficulty believing those things? It's okay to be honest and say, yeah, I, I struggle with that. I, I know what verse 14 says, but 
it doesn't feel, I don't feel like that very often uh, when it comes to these things. I have difficulty believing that's what God is going to do. You know, it's as if God knew that we would struggle to believe such a promise as that. Such a great and far-reaching promise. Because what, what does he say at the very end of verse 14? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, it, like, does he have to say that? Like, do we not know that Isaiah is the word of God? And that everything that Isaiah says and writes here is what God says here? Uh, does Isaiah have to even keep saying, thus saith the Lord? No, but it's as if God... You know, kind of condescending to our weakness, the weakness of our faith. What does he say? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's, it's the reason for assurance of, of the surety of this promise. God says, this is me talking. The mouth of the Lord has said these things, therefore it cannot fail to come to pass. So may our God and Savior work in us by his spirit, what is pleasing in his sight, that you and I might have our hearts more inclined to delight in and honor his Sabbath, that he might teach us, you and me, more and more to learn to delight in him and then to be greatly used by him for the glory of his great name. Amen.